So the first question that we have today, it is a great question. I know that uh, this is probably not the only question. We have two. Sometimes we only do one question because the answer is going to be long enough. But we've got two questions here today. Thanks, Jude. Uh, the first question is, is Santa an idol? If I don't believe in Santa, but have Santa figures for decorations around Christmas, is that an idol? So that's our first question, and I think in order to answer this question, we need to define an idol. We need to define idol. In the Hebrew, idol is Elil. In the Greek, idol is Edolon. And both of them can be defined as crafted images, which are artifacts of worship. Crafted images that are artifacts of worship. So I think there's two parts to this definition. One is that they're crafted, right? So these are images that have been crafted, that have been sculpted, and then not just that. So if, if that was all it was, then we might be able to say, yeah, a, a, an image of Santa is an idol. But that's not all that the definition consists of. It's not just a crafted or sculpted images. It also includes worship. So the Israelites took the first and second commandments very seriously. I think those are important commandments. They're found in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. There's our first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, a thousand, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, so those are the first two commandments, right? So we've got, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. In ancient days, people, I think it's important for us to understand that in ancient days, people would carve these images because they believed in different gods. So these carved images weren't just like inventions. I mean, they were inventions, but they were these ideas of like, there is a god that looks like this, and I'm going to carve this image of this god so they didn't believe that these carved images in and of themselves were the gods, but that these carved images were representations of the gods that they already believed in. So then they believed that if they could carve these images that represented a god that they already believed in, then they could worship these carved images in hopes that they would appease these gods and somehow live a better life. So if you could imagine, let's say there was a sun god, they could carve an image of the sun god, and then they would worship the sun god, knowing that, that this carved image wasn't the actual god, but was a representation of their sun god, in hopes that this would appease the sun god to give them more sunlight, which would give them better crops. So it was all a, a way of manipulating these believed-in gods so that they could have a more comfortable life. It is important for us to note that it was not the image itself, 
But what the image represented, something that they worshipped. So the Jew took this commandment very seriously, and it went, they went so far that they wouldn't have any carved images at all. They wouldn't have any sculptures, what we could, would consider a piece of art. And we know that it's not a god, it doesn't represent a god, it's just simply a piece of art. They would say, no, you can't even have that, because they feared that that might induce some form of worship. So they took this so seriously that they almost forgot the, second, the point of the second commandment. The carved images represented things worshipped other than God. So today, we don't typically do that. We don't have these carved images that represent some God that we worship. Our idols are not often carved images, but there are still idols in our life, things that we worship that are not God. To worship means to, the, the actual literal meaning is to lay prostrate. And that means to submit your life to. And there are a lot of things, even good things, that we submit our lives to other than God. Some of the good things might include family. Family in American culture can oftentimes be an idol. Now, family is a good thing. Family is actually ordained and created by God. And yet we can easily turn that into an idol. Ministry, once again, a good thing, created and ordained by God, that we can turn into an idol. Or work. We were created to work. But how many of us have received our value and said, what I really need is to be valued at work, and therefore I'm going to put everything I have into work, and it becomes a replacement for God in our lives. So we see that even good things can become idols in our life. And the same could be said for Santa. If you worship Santa, or at the very least, if you believe that Santa has some type of magical power that might manifest something that you desire, and all you have to do is do the right thing so that Santa will manifest these things for you, then I would say yes, Santa is probably an idol for you. However, if you use Santa as a Christmas decoration, in particular, if you recognize the historical roots of Santa, meaning he was at first Saint Nicholas, a historical figure and theologian who once actually punched a heretic, and you recognize the historical roots of Santa, and you say, I want to I recognize these historical roots and use him as a decoration during this time, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I would say, I think you are in the clear of having Santa, the image of Santa, as an idol in which you worship. And you are not breaking the second commandment with that. So that is the answer for the first question. The second question, uh, we're going to turn to Matthew 6 for, but uh, there's, there's a lot more going on with this second question. So the second question is, in trusting God... How do we separate planning versus trusting? 
An example would be preppers gathering food versus trusting in God's provision. Or how about investments? Can you do too much investing? And then finally, even Joseph was placed to be a preparer. But where do we draw the line? All right. So, even Joseph was placed to be a preparer. Where do we draw the line? Well, I think we can actually walk through a lot of Proverbs to answer this question first. Uh, but we'll start off with Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Now, this is, if we break this down, so the plans of the diligent, someone who is diligently planning, well, those plans will lead to abundance. They will lead to a better life. And then he contrasts that person who is wise, who plans diligently, who will live an abundant life, contrasts that with someone who is hasty. Hasty here means to act or move with speed. And it gives the idea of reaction instead of planning. Someone who is constantly reacting to the world around them, but not actually planning ahead of time. So this person is not planning, but simply react, reacting as life moves around him. Thus, he has to react quickly, right? Because he hasn't planned ahead of time. So throughout the Proverbs, we get this idea that the wise plan for the future they put resources aside for an emergency. They use wisdom as they look towards the future and they plan accordingly. We should do the same. Proverbs 6 has a whole paragraph dedicated to the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Well, what does the ant do? All summer long, the ant prepares and sets aside food for the winter. That's an encouragement for us to plan as well, to set things aside, to use wisdom, to read the times, to know how much we should be setting aside. So we should do the same. We should be planning. We should be encouraged to plan. We should be encouraged to prepare. So where do we get the idea that we shouldn't plan? I think one of the main verses is found in Matthew 16, or sorry, Matthew 6, 19 through 20. So I'm going to read that, and then we'll just look at that a little bit more. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so people typically tend to read this, and then they'll, they'll tax it on with 25 onward about not being anxious for tomorrow and they'll say see we're not supposed to plan because God is going to provide everything for us that we need and I don't think that's what's going on here I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying so in the context this is the Sermon on the Mount now many people read the Sermon on the Mount and 
uh, I mean, people love the Sermon on the Mount. And usually when they picture it, they picture like Jesus talking to his disciples. And that's part of what's going on here. Jesus is, is on this mount. He's preaching. He's teaching his disciples. And so you can picture the disciples sitting right in front of him. But also a large crowd has gathered. And so you could picture beyond the disciples, there's a huge crowd sitting beyond him. And beyond that huge crowd, there are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees didn't come to learn from Jesus. The Pharisees came to try to pick Jesus apart. The, G the Pharisees were trying to find fault in Jesus. So you can picture Jesus standing there, teaching the disciples. Beyond that is the crowd. And beyond that, the Pharisees standing. Why is it important that the Pharisees are standing? Because that represents their judgment on Jesus. They are objecting to his teaching. So the Pharisees were considered the most, most righteous in Israel at the time. But they had lost what it means to follow God. They had become more concerned with proving their righteousness than actually living for God. They wanted to prove that they were the righteous ones. So you could picture Jesus teaching the disciples, preaching to the crowds, and as he's preaching, you might even picture, now I don't think Jesus actually pointed his finger at the Pharisees, but you could picture him pointing his fingers at, or his finger at the Pharisees, essentially throughout the Sermon on the Mount, giving them a warning. Because they are trying to prove that they are righteous. And his point is, you're not. You need a savior. Every single one of us struggle with this idea. So many of us think that we are righteous, that we have like somehow earned righteousness, that we have done what it takes. And usually what we do in order to find that is we compare ourselves with someone else, right? Almost every single one of us can find someone worse off than us. I remember before I was really following Christ, I thought I was a pretty good guy because I hung out with guys that were worse than me. And it was always way easier for me to like say, at least I'm not like Joe. Did you know what he did last night? I mean, sure, I did some stuff, but I didn't do what Joe did. And that always made me feel self-righteous. That always made me just, you know, I'm, I'm really a good guy. Not recognizing, not really struggling with the depravity of my own heart. And that's what the Pharisees are doing as well. And so Jesus is giving them this sermon, giving them this idea that, no, you're not righteous. You're trying to prove that you're righteous, and you're not. You need a Savior. Every single one of us, no matter how righteous you think you are, you have rebelled against God in some form or fashion. At some point in your life, you have shaken your fist at God and said, no, forget you, God. I know better than you, and I'm going to do some, this thing my way, not your way. And as a result, every single one of us have been separated from God. And as a result, every single one of us deserve eternal death. That's the point Jesus is making with the Sermon on the Mount. But what's amazing about God is he doesn't leave us in our rebellion. That's the point of Jesus, is he came and he lived a perfect life. 
and yet he dies on the cross and takes the punishment you deserve for your rebellion against God. And all you have to do to be made righteous, it doesn't take works, it doesn't take all this other stuff, all it takes is putting your faith and trust in Christ. And when you do that, then he makes you righteous. It's none of your own works. He makes you righteous before a holy God. And that's something the Pharisees needed to understand. That's something we need to understand to this day. And so what he's doing is he's going through and he's showing how they cannot be righteous. No matter how much they're trying to prove their own righteousness, they cannot be righteous. And so he's come off explaining the protocol for fasting, and then he transitions into treasures. The Pharisees used fasting to prove their righteousness. They also had this belief that the more money they had, the more treasures that they had, the more God, it showed that God favored you. So one of the ways that you could prove your righteousness was by accumulating treasure. Of course God favors me. Of course I'm righteous. Do you see how big of a house I have? Do you see all of the gold I have? Of course I'm favored of God. Of course I'm righteous. That was their thoughts. And Jesus is going to, this section is a stark warning and contrast to what the Pharisees believed. So he starts off with, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So first off, we need to recognize that this is addressing hoarding, not wise savings and planning, but hoarding up for yourselves. Now, there is a little bit of a question on what is wise planning versus hoarding. And I think that's going to be answered uh, contextually. So for everyone in, in a different country, that's going to be a different answer. And it's going to be a different answer for what does it take to live where you live. So the answer might be, look different in Flagstaff versus Kansas. So my mom is from Kansas. Uh, her parents, when they were ready to retire, they sold their house for a whopping 30 thousand dollars it was a three bedroom with a nice basement on five acres thirty thousand that's what you can get in kansas if you're like hard up and you're like i just need a house i mean kansas <laughs> you can get acreage in kansas all right but, but my point is, the cost of living in Kansas is, is quite a bit different from the cost of living in Flagstaff. And so I can't tell you the, the exact rule for the difference between hoarding and wise planning based on where you live. That's something that you have to use wisdom and discernment for. It's going to need prayer, and it's going to need looking towards God for what he has called you to when it comes to planning for later in life versus hoarding for later in life. That is something that you're going to have to have the Holy Spirit convict you on. I can't be the one who will convict you for that. All right? 
and it's going to be different for everyone. But that's what we need to recognize, is that that's what he's talking about. He's addressing hoarding, not wise savings, and not planning for the future, not planning for emergencies. Secondly, he's reminding us of how temporary our materials are. So our materials are temporary. Everything on this earth is temporary. Moth and rust can destroy. No matter what you own, it will deteriorate. No matter what you own, it will start to break down. No matter how nice your car is, it will need maintenance. No matter how nice your house is, the winds here in Dhoni Park will rip off the shingles. <laughs> and not only will our things break down, but thieves can steal. So even if, it dis even if it survives the destruction of the world, there is still the possibility of theft. And if you have ever been a victim of theft, you know how fast and without warning it comes. Before you realize what has happened, the thing that you owned can be gone. And that's the point, is that whatever we have here on this earth is temporary. Even investments. If you've been following the stock market this year, you know that it, is the, it finished the worst it has in over a decade. Now, I'm not talking against bad against the stock market. I think that there can be some wise investments. But I know one retired couple that has lost $80,000 in the market just this year. Whatever we have on earth is temporary. So verse 20 then contrasts that which is temporary with that which lasts. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So unlike what we can hoard on earth, that which is in heaven is eternal and will not deteriorate. That which we hoard up in uh, which what we have in heaven cannot be stolen. So what is this treasure in heaven? Well, he doesn't tell us. We don't know what the treasure in heaven is. Just that there is treasure and that it is better. There is treasure in heaven, and it is better, it will last forever, and it cannot be stolen. So then verse 21 gives us the crux of the matter. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this isn't about wise planning, but about hoarding treasure for yourself, Hoarding for your treasure for yourself is strictly condemned by Christ because it reveals where your heart really is. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can't tell you the difference between wise planning or I can't tell you exactly for your situation what is wise planning and what is actually hoarding because it's really a heart issue. And the question at hand is, where is your heart when you begin to save for retirement? When you begin to set aside funds for an emergency? Where is your heart? Are you doing it because God has called you to be wise with your money? Or are you doing it because you trust 
in your money more than you trust in God. That's the crux of it. And then verse 22 and 23, they almost seem out of place. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So it almost seems like he's talking about these treasures, and then all of a sudden he switches to this lamp. But the point is, your eye should be able to see how little value these earthly things are. In particular, the Pharisees, who were concerned with God's righteousness, yet they thought they were righteous because they were holding up these treasures that were temporary. And so Jesus is saying, you think you can see, you think you can see that this is what's making you righteous, but really you are spiritually blind. Because that can't make you righteous. So then he concludes this with verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is an important part of our answer. Yes, we need to be wise in preparations for the future. But why are we preparing? Is it to live a fancy life? Is it to live a life full of pleasure? Are we preparing because we trust in our own preparations? Am I storing up money because that's where my heart is? If that is the case, then money has become our master. But if we are planning because we want to glorify God by being good stewards of the resources he has given us, then God is our master. So I don't necessarily think the question should be planning versus trusting. To be a good stewards, we should be planning on how we will use the resources. We should be planning on how we will be using our time, our talent, and our treasure that God has given us. So the question should be, are you trusting in your planning, or are you trusting in God? I think a good test for us is what happens when our planning fails. So we could take Joseph, for example. If you're familiar with the story, if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, right? And he, uh, he even has these dreams of, uh, of his brothers. After they're interpreted, his brothers are bowing down to him, and he tells his brothers, which, by the way, talking about discernment, maybe you don't want to tell your brothers about how they're going to bow down to you at some point. I don't know. That's a good lesson for us to learn, that even the wise Joseph can make some mistakes. But it all turns out that, the, that his brothers become jealous of him, and they sell him into slavery. And these slave traders, they take him, and they take him all the way to Egypt. Now, just think about this for a second. You're Joseph. You've been planning on having your brothers bow down to you, and you get sold into slavery? Well, those are some wrecked plans, aren't they? But he goes to Egypt, and he begins working as a slave. Now, he could have just given up and said, well, that's it. My, the, this vision that God had given me of my brothers bowing down to me, that's over. Except he knows that he's been called 
to serve. He knows that he's been called into administration, and he continues to work, not knowing how God will, will fulfill his plans. Well, he rises up in this house until his master's wife accuses him of, of, an, of, of pursuing her. And what does his master do? Send him off to prison. I would say Joseph must have experienced some failure in his life. He gets sold into slavery, and while in slavery, he gets put in prison. I think Joseph is probably thinking, my plans are all out the window. But he knows that God has called him to something. And so he continues, instead of trusting in his plans, instead of trusting in his preparations, he continues to trust in God. Now that doesn't mean that he stopped doing what he was supposed to do. He continued to work diligently. And what does God do? He raises him up in prison. And eventually brings him to Pharaoh's house. And raises him up in Pharaoh, and raises him up in Egypt to where he becomes second in all of Egypt. So yes, God brought him in Egypt to Egypt to be a preparer. But he didn't trust in his preparations. He trusted in God. And when all of his preparations went sideways, he could still trust in God. I think of that, that retired couple that lost $80,000 this year in their investments. Are they trusting in their wise... I think they did do wise planning for several years of their life. Are they trusting in that, that planning? Well, if they were, they'd be in despair right now. But they can still have joy because although they were planning, although they had wisdom in their planning and investments, they're still trusting in God. So I think we are called to read the times, to have wisdom with the times. So look at the politics around us. Look what's happening with the stock market. Look, look at what's happening with the economy. That takes discernment. And we are called to know our assignment. What has God called you to? And then as we read the times and we know our assignment, we are called to prepare and we are called to plan. And I would say to prepare for what? To continue in our assignment. I think a great example of this is we find in Acts 7 and just throughout Acts in general. But in Acts 7 in particular, we see Stephen killed in Jerusalem. This caused many believers to flee the area. This is one way that I think they actually read the times, knew their assignment, and prepared. It took a lot of preparation for them to flee Jerusalem. They didn't just do it on a whim. But they didn't feel called to stay either. And God took those people that left because of persecution and used them to spread the church throughout all of Israel and even out to Damascus. But there were also believers who knew the times, assessed the risk, but knew their assignment was to stay. And God used them to continue to grow the church in a persecuted area. 
That's why it's so important for us to know what our assignment is. What is God calling you to? Sometimes he's going to call you to stay. Sometimes he's going to call you to go. Both of them take wisdom in assessing the times, planning and preparation, and trusting God with our assignment. So we should not be preparing just to live a comfortable life. Our focus should be trusting God to guide us as we plan to glorify him with our life. This could, take, this could look several different ways, but the focus will be giving God the glory. So I might re-ask the question this way, trusting in what and for what objective? Trusting in your planning and preparedness to live a comfortable life? Well, I don't think we're ever called to that. But trusting in God to fulfill our assignment, if that is where you're try trying to live, then you're called to plan and prepare. Trusting God and knowing that your true treasure is in heaven. Dear Lord, we thank you for these questions. They're questions that, that sometimes can have a complexity to them that can't just be answered with a yes or a no, but it takes us doing heart work to dig deep into our heart to know why am I planning? Am I planning because I'm not trusting you or am I planning because I am trusting you? Help us as we examine our hearts to know the difference. Help us to experience your conviction and to live out the life that you have called us to. In your name we pray. Amen.